This week's episode is brought to you by Fairy Godmother Travel. They are ready to help you plan your best Disney vacation ever. Contact them at Communicore Weekly at FairyGodmotherTravel.com and tell them that we sent you. Hello, and welcome to Communicore Weekly, the greatest online show and home of the world's first pair of independently born identical twins. I'm George. And I'm Jeff. I didn't prepare any banter for us this oh, week. Oh, then I've got a good banter for you. Oh, oh I've got a great one. Go. So, you know, I was thinking about this the other day because I've been listening to a lot more music in the car, but that's we'll talk about that later, like off the air. Okay, okay. But, you know, I thought if there's a Weird Al parody band, would they just play the regular song? You mean like a tri- okay okay I see where you're going like with this. Like a weird Al tribute band, would they just play the regular song and not the crazy song? Well, that see, he if made? it was a tribute band, they'd still have to play the same things that he's doing. But if they were a parody of Weird Al, yeah, that's like a parody band. They would play the regular. They would song. play the regular songs, the regular see, versions. It, w- it would just be a bunch of guys that would wear Hawaiian shirts, but they would call themselves the Weird Owls. O W L S. Oh, George, you're and killing it right now. The, the 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 audience they would hoot. When they liked something, okay, and okay. the dancing would just be twisting their heads around. I'm so, pretty sure you just decided our next gig when the show is over. Oh, I think that's fantastic. I we're think good. we're going to have to tour the country as we are, the Weird Owls. We are the Weird Owls. Let's let's get on that and see if uh, if he'll work with us, maybe. Okay, okay, I'm down. Let's let's do this show so we can start figuring out instruments and whatnot. Okay, okay, all right. It's time for Disney history. There are a lot of people who contributed to the success of the Walt Disney Company. I mean, overall, not just a particular part, just overall. And, you know, people tend to think of the theme parks of these days, you know, but back in the day, before the theme parks, Disney was well known for many, many other things. So we kind of wanted to shine the spotlight on someone who doesn't get enough recognition these days, especially since his work definitely helped the company uh, flush with cash, if you will. Yeah, I was so disappointed when I found this wasn't about me. Sorry, George. Yeah, I know. Okay, so all of us, because we're all amazing Disney people and the cadets are amazing, all of us know the heritage of the Walt Disney Company and that it began with animation, uh, beginning with the early shorts featuring Oswald and then Mickey Mouse and, and, of course, the Silly Symphonies. The success of these animated shorts gave Walt and his animators the confidence to tackle feature-length animation. And, of course, they did to great success. And in 1937, with Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, Uh, animated features were now the staple of Disney, and in some ways, they continue to be to this day. But, I mean, you guys know Walt. I mean, not personally. If you did, that's kind of awesome. But you know that he wasn't always, you know, content to remain with the status quo. So, you know, in the interest of pursuing, uh, of just pushing his artistic and technical boundaries, he kind of directed the studio into live-action films. uh, And that began with the period drama Treasure Island, which was released in 1950. And, you know, they released a few dramatic films over the years, but eventually they got into comedy as well, beginning with The Shaggy Dog in 1959. Basically, they had this wide range of material that they were producing. 
We should redo the and make it the Shaggy Podcaster. Okay. Well, I mean, I need a I need a haircut. I think we all do. Okay. Anyway, so so these films these films ranged from dramatic to whimsical musical comedies, but there was always a consistency. And many of the screenplays of these early films were written by Bill Walsh, Bill Walsh, and Don DeGrotti, which definitely helped with that consistency. But perhaps the greatest level of consistency comes from the director. So it will come as no surprise to learn that many of the live-action films were directed by one man, Robert Stevenson. Stevenson's Disney career spanned, you know, close to 20 years, beginning with the drama Johnny Tremaine in 1957 and ending with the comedy The Shaggy DA in 1976. And in between, he directed a wide range of films for Disney, including Old Yeller and Kidnapped. Um, he also smoothly handled more complex pieces, such as Darby O'Gill and the Little People and Bedknobs and Broomsticks. Uh, his strongest suit was comedies, including the classics such as The Absent-Minded Professor, uh, the sequel to that, The Son of Flubber, also That Darn Cat, Blackbeard's Ghost, The Love Bug, and Herbie Rides Again. But of the 21 films he directed for Disney, one really stands out among the others and it considered his crowning achievement, and almost, you know, the Disney Company's crowning achievement, mm -hmm. and that is 1964's Mary Poppins. You know, a blend of music, animation, drama, and comedy, this film is uh, about a practically perfect English nanny, and the family she cared for is loved by pretty much everyone. So profound was the film and, and Steven's handling of it that it was nominated for Best Picture, and Stevenson was nominated for Best Director. Julie Andrews, in her film debut as the title character, was nominated for Best Actress and took home the Oscar. So Stevenson obviously was pretty successful for the company. Um, he was actually born in England in March 1905 and was formally educated at Cambridge University where he studied science. But he took this psychology assessment that involved film goers that kind of steered him into a career in the movies, first as a writer and then ultimately as a director. And after several years working in England, uh, directing such things as King Solomon's Mines in 1937, he was actually recruited to Los Angeles by famed Hollywood producer uh, David Selznick. So with Selznick, his uh, notable early achievement was directing Jane Eyre for 20th Century Fox in 1944. And Stevenson worked through the 1940s and the early 50s in Hollywood, but eventually turned his attention to television, most notably directing seven episodes of Alfred Hitchcock Presents. He also directed episodes of Gunsmoke and General Electric Theater. So you guys already know that the Walt Disney Company was involved in this quote-unquote new media of television, and they had a huge hit on their hands with Zorro. So they actually recruited Stevenson to direct three episodes of the show. And they liked what he did so much, so he was actually asked to direct the Disneyland TV show, and he wound up directing 26 of them throughout his entire career. You know, Walt was impressed with the skills behind the lens and decided to give him the directorial duties for Disney's live-action film Johnny Tremaine. And its success was twofold. The colonial American, uh, the colonial America drama, proved to be a box office hit for Disney, and Stevenson proved even further that he was up to Disney standards. So his follow-up was the classic Old Yeller, and then he next turned his attention to a significantly less sad movie about a dog, uh, the comedy of the Shaggy Dog. But he actually continued to churn out box office hits for the company, and so a, a new Disney star was born, although it was behind the lens. 
He was especially prolific from 1960 to 1968, when the quiet and unassuming Stevenson directed a dozen features, providing a steady stream of hits. Many of his films uh, involve working with children, which many directors find, find quite challenging, particularly if the children aren't trained as actors. Thankfully, he didn't have to worry about stage moms back then, like, like we do. Right? Yeah, exactly, you know. exactly. We're talking to you, Zach. Um, but Stevenson really worked well with the kids. I mean, he worked with a young Tommy Kirk on his film debut of Old Yeller. And, you know, Kirk actually said a few times he was lucky to have a great director like Stevenson. And he went on to say that he was very patient with him, and, you know, that made him want to do even better on camera when he had to. So Stevenson was also a studio's dream because he was mindful of the financial aspects of films and knew the importance of keeping to a budget. He knew how important it was to storyboard complex scenes because you know, that, that helped keep the cost down. And Stevenson suggested the use of storyboards for live action films for the first time when working on Darby O'Gill. The trick shots made it necessary, he said, and when he asked Walt if he could storyboard, you know, he was delighted. His masterpiece, Mary Poppins, was a project that involved uh, years of while pursuing Pamela Travers and trying to option her collection of books about the nanny. And, you know, of course, you can see the full story of that in Saving Mr. Banks, but uh, Reader's Digest version, Travers finally <laughs> relented, um, provided that she had final script approval. And since her work about Mary Poppins was more of a collection of short vignettes, uh, again, veteran Disney writers Bill Walsh and Don Negrotti, along with songwriters Richard and Robert Sherman, they worked together to form the uh, elaborate script of the film. And Julie Andrews was cast for the lead after a personal visit and request from Walt following her Broadway performance in Camelot. Dick Van Dyke was cast as Bert, the chimney sweep, based on his broad physical comedy skills. And with the cast, crew, and script in place, Robert Stevenson stepped in and directed a masterpiece. He basically turned Mary Poppins into Disney's biggest live-action hit, both commercially and critically. I mean, in addition to directing it, he was also personally very, very proud when he made a minor contribution to the film's look. Um, how so, you may be asking? Well, mm -hmm. the book was set in the 1930s England, but the script moved it to 1910. And since Stevenson was actually a child in England at that exact time, he advised the set decorators about the toys for the nursery room in the Banks' house. And like many other Disney Studio veterans at the time, Stevenson had a personal relationship with Walt. He noted that Walt rewarded eagerness. Stevenson remembered how he requested to direct the absent-minded professor. He recalled Walt believed in enthusiasm, and if you were as enthused as he was, he would give you the job, as you know what happened there. He also found Walt to be very accessible, but he never in interfered with a director on set. Uh, he was always in the background when he was around, letting Stevenson be in charge and do his thing. Uh, he was close to the writing and editing, but not the shooting itself, was what Stevenson once said about Walt. And when filming the comedy Blackbeard's Ghost, Walt paid a visit to the set in November of 1966, and it would be the last time he personally oversaw a Disney film. Stevenson remembered that he suddenly came to the set and saw him sitting on a stool drinking coffee. Walt had literally just came back from getting the biopsy that revealed he was in the late stages of cancer, but wanted to come see how Stevenson was doing. Walt passed away the following month. Despite his, you know, broad success as this amazing director, Stevenson really remained humble, uh, he, and he really credited his film's success to teamwork. He, and he had a very simple philosophy about his job. He said, when I'm directing a picture, what I have in mind is a happy audience enjoying it in a movie house. And that's basically exactly what happened. Unfortunately, Stevenson passed away in 1986, but for his contributions to the company, he was named a Disney legend in 2002. 
Yeah, and earlier in the segment, we ran off a list of all those movies, and I thought, I love every single They're all one amazing. Of they are all classics. The comedies were brilliant. I mean, Blackbeard's Ghost is so many funny parts. Loved it. Of course, Mary Poppins. Heck yes. Can't say anything else about that. So, But we would love to know what you guys think. What's your favorite Robert Stevenson movie, or what's your favorite live-action movie? Just you know, give us a ring on the Communicore Weekly GOAT line at 424-785-4628. That's 424-785-GOAT. He's a nerd, he's a geek, but we all like to hear him speak. So listen up to the words from his speech. It's George's Book of the Week. This week's book is Black Widow Forever Red by Margaret Stoll. And Avenger fans need to sit up and... Natasha Romanoff fans need to stand up because this is great. So this is a book that focuses on our favorite Avengers spy, Natasha Romanoff, and two teenagers that have a somewhat mysterious connection to her. So we meet Anna Orlov, a teen that's been secreted away by S.H.I.E.L.D. after she was rescued almost 10 years earlier from the Red Room operations in Russia which would be the same Red Room operations that created Natasha that we got to see some glimpses of in Age of Ultron. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. So uh, Anna was even rescued by Natasha before the facility was destroyed. And uh, we also meet a gentleman named Alex, another teenager, who seems to be entering Anna's dreams unknown to himself. So, yes, yeah, different things going on. So Black Widow is that rare book about superheroes, especially one who really doesn't have superpowers. Uh, The book is action-packed with very believable action scenes, and I never felt like anything was over the top. It all felt pretty believable within the Marvel Cinematic Universe itself. You know, it really felt like I was watching Natasha, if I can call her Natasha, you know, I like to think I can. I don't know Uh, if the restraining order allows that, but go on. Well, okay, unless we are otherwise. But it was almost like watching her on a side mission while one of the Avengers missions was going on, like she was off doing something different. Is this set Um, in the movie universe, or is it set in... Yeah, it's set in the film universe. It is, okay. Marvel Cinematic Universe, because Agent Coulson's there. Okay, So it tells you it it happened before a lot of the Avengers stuff. So um, there was... What surprised me about the book, there was really great dialogue. I really thought that I was sort of, you know, in my in my mind, listening to Scarlett Johansson deliver the lines as Natasha. She had the dialogue down pat. She captured the essence, Stoll did the author of Natasha, and created very believable and convincing characters. And as I mentioned, Agent Coulson makes several appearances, and he felt completely believable in the book. Really liked it, really liked it. Uh, there was a lot of intrigue in the story, and, and the backstory itself specifically is doled out in a very tight and page-turning story uh, style. The, there were a few nights that I stayed up way too late wanting to see what was going to happen next while reading the book. And, you know, Anna and Alex, they try to seek the answers to their connections to each other and to the Black Widow. And the journey takes them to the Triskelion. It takes them to Mother Russia to find some stuff. But, you know, the story never felt overwhelming or out of place. Uh, and it really, it really could have been, you know, sort of like the missing Black Widow film itself. I thought, you know, that highly of the book. But it really, to me, it was the pacing and the story. It made it sort of slightly epic. So I think it's enjoyable. Uh, it, it is a book that's written for the teen, the young adult market. 
But I think anybody who's really enjoys the superheroes, the Avenger films, wants a little more insight is going to enjoy it. Um, if, you know, fans of the Avenger films, if they want to dive deeper into the Black Widow's history, they're going to love this book um, because it really takes us and shows us parts of the Red Room and some of the training to, to show the origins of the Black Widow and others like her because she was not the only one. What? Huh? That's all I'm going to say. All right. All right. Because it's time to end the review. So uh, this week's book, which I really, really enjoyed, was Black Widow Forever Red by Margaret Stoll. You don't know what you know till we know you. You, you just don't know. Here's one little fact we bet you didn't. One little fact we bet you didn't know. This one little fact is dedicated to Dave and Nikki. So in 1976, guests ate over 1,200,000 frozen bananas. <laughs> Aren't you glad this one little fact wasn't about bananas? Now we know you? Sometimes you might see it, sometimes you don't. Hey, look, what's that? It's a five-legged goat. There is a pretty popular quote-unquote statue at the entrance to Rafiki's Planet Watch uh, at Disney's Animal Kingdom. And when you get off the Wildlife Express train, there's these wonderful elephants that are there to greet you, slash having your children climb all over, whatever one applies to you. It could go either way. Um, and when they, they, they really do look great, but they originally were to serve a different purpose altogether, aside from a jungle gym and a photo spot. Um... As you may or may not know, depending on how far you got there, at the end of the path here, guests have the opportunity to pet various farm animals like five-legged goats, um, pigs, mules, cows, and, and a whole bunch of other stuff. But naturally, Disney encourages guests to wash their hands after interacting with the animals, and they provide a hand-washing station at the exit of the petting zoo. However, the sinks weren't going to be uh, traditional sinks to begin with, but something a lot more creative. So if you take a look at the elephant statue and then you look at their trunks, you can see what their original purpose was. It was going to be a hand-washing station. That water was going to come out of their trunks into a little thing, and it would have been great. But now they're just a statue. And I've got nothing to segue between No segue this. for George. Not at all. So we will just jump right into the year of a million or so limited time cadets prize winner. Heck yes. For this week, as everybody remembers, we made the announcement we're doing it for another year in honor of all the amazing celebrations that Disney has done. Over the years, that lasted longer than a year. Yes. Um, there are year-long celebrations that lasted <laughs> two years. Exactly. So uh, there's still plenty of time. We say that now. Um, about 50-some-odd weeks or less by the time you hear this. To 49 enter at this contest. point? Yeah, 49. That's right. So just need to email your name, address, and birthday to communicorweekly at gmail.com so you can be part of this weekly giveaway. And just to clarify, I know George said it once before, but if you already entered last year, you don't oh. need to enter again. If exactly. you didn't win, you're still in the running. Don't worry. Yes, yes, yes. Um, so this week uh, is a fantastic prize pack from Teresa Corey at Fairy Godmother Travel. We'd like to thank her for all of her support. This week's winner is Maureen C. from West Hampton, New Jersey. Hooray! It's cold there. So I'm sorry. Something good does happen in New Jersey. Somebody wins a prize. Yeah, exactly. The only I thing. Just we just slammed a whole state. Wow. I live there, so it's okay. There'll be a big sign that says "Welcome to New Jersey," except Communicore Weekly. Fair enough. I don't want to go back anytime soon. Might be no okay with that. It'd be free PR, right? 
Uh, I guess, kinda. I guess. Wow. Okay. All right, so don't forget to enter the contest. You still have plenty of time. And that leads us to the end of the show. So thank you guys so much for watching and listening to another episode of Communicore Weekly. However you get the show to your ears or your eyes, feel free to leave a comment on YouTube <laughs> or a rate us on iTunes. We'd love to hear from you. Yes, email us at communicorweekly at gmail.com to let us know how much you love us or to enter the contest. We're okay with that. You can also like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash communicorweekly. And you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram to say, Sup, Corey. I'm at Imaginerding. He's at Jeff Heimbuck. And of course, you can give us a call on the Communicore Weekly Goat Line at 424-785-4628. And visit CommunicoreWeekly.com and click on the link for the Communa Store and buy really cool stuff from us. And of course, you can always get your official cadet membership card and stickers by sending a self-addressed stamped envelope to Communicore Weekly, P.O. Box 432, Orange, California, 92856. And I got an email this week saying they couldn't write it down while they're driving at 80 miles per hour, which don't do, not safe. But the website uh, the website has the, yes. the P.O. Box on it as well. So go to the That's website true. if you don't want to write it down now. And were they trying to get 88 miles per hour? I Maybe. I don't know. And you really should email it or mail it to... P.O. Box 432 Banana, California. Oh, man. No? No. Okay, no. so anyways, you can always visit patreon.com slash Weekly and help support the greatest online show. For Jeff Heimbuck, I'm George Taylor. And for George Taylor, I'm Jeff Heimbuck. Thanks so much for listening, guys and gals. We'll see you next time on Communicore Weekly, the greatest online show. 